Good morning. There is one thing I would like to announce. I have not formally announced this or sent out a flyer yet. Uh, December 9th, December 9th, starting at 5 p.m., we'll have our annual Christmas and Christmas party and chili cook-off. I'll get a flyer together, send that out soon. But December 9th, that is a Saturday, uh, 5 p.m., we'll have the Christmas party and chili cook-off. Before we get into our sermon, let's pray, and then we'll get into it. God, I am thankful for how you provide for us. You provide for our physical needs, but Lord, most importantly, you provide for our spiritual needs. We're thankful for Christ. We're thankful for the relationship he has established between us and you. Lord, we pray that your spirit would constantly be changing us, constantly be sanctifying us. God, may we look to you, may we look to your spirit to be led, may we look to your word to be led, to grow in wisdom and in knowledge. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. I'm not even too sure how to start this sermon. Um, It was one of those times where, you know, maybe Michaela inspired this, but that's okay. Uh, We'll talk about it after. Uh, But I I was just reading over my sermon last night, and Michaela said something that inspired this, and I'm grateful that she did. I'm thankful that she did, because it got me reconsidering my whole intro. Uh, And so on my notes, you can't see it here, but I was just like, nah, that's not going to work. Crossed right over it. Uh, And I'll I'll explain why that is, but I'm going to explain it by starting with John chapter 3. Verse 30, that, it's not on the slides, but that's where John the Baptist says of Jesus that he must increase, but I must decrease. Sometimes when I prepare sermons and when I read over a text, I, I, I try to think of a good title. I try to think of something clever, and this week was no exception you know, there are some titles that I'm pretty proud of. One of them is, uh, if you remember a while back, it was kind of a weird title. It, it was Pigs Will Fly. I thought it was clever, uh, according to the sermon. I think it was relevant to what I was preaching, but it, it was, you know, supposed to be a funny, clever title. And so this week, I, you know, I was trying to think, okay, I, I have the text here. I got, I got points from the text. What, what can be the title? What, what kind of clever title can I come up with? And uh, something Michaela said to me last night, I was like, man, I need to stop worrying about that. Uh, i got to be honest with you, and and this is just complete honesty, there are some times where I get so caught up in trying to be so clever, trying to be cool, uh, you know, try to preach in a way that engages, and you know, engagement is important to a certain extent, uh, but it's not everything. As I read this text, uh, the text that I'm going to preach, that is not at all what I should be concerned about. So much of the text, so much, obviously, the the whole text, scripture, the Bible, is not about me. It's not about me. It's not about whether or not I can come up with a clever title, a clever sermon, some cool, clever points. Um, It's about Jesus. This text is no exception, and the, the, the main, really, the main verse out of this block of text here is about his glorification. And so John 3.30 is a reminder that I need, 
uh, quite frankly, every single day. He must increase, but I must decrease. And it is, it's really a, a universal struggle. Right? Uh, we struggle sometimes, and we want to receive glory where we shouldn't. Um, I know I'm not alone in this. Wanting to be impressive, wanting to approve myself, I'm sure that you all can relate. I'm sure that there has been times in your life where you felt some anxiety uh, and you just wanted to really receive glory. And so that's why this title, it was changed. Um, And that's why there's no graphic, it was changed. My intro was changed. In our text, we see Jesus' glory and what results from it. John chapter 12. John chapter 12, starting with verse 9. It says, when the large crowd of Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. Now, this is not really a surprise, right? They've heard of Lazarus. They've heard about Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. So who wouldn't want to go, right? If you heard that Jesus raised somebody from the dead, like say Jesus came down on earth, for he, he just made a, an appearance, he made, had a cameo, uh, he came down on earth, he rose somebody from the dead, obviously you'd like to go see Jesus. You'd like to go see that person who was raised from the dead. You'd probably leave right now. I would leave right now. I would stop preaching. I would go leave to see who Jesus raised from the dead. Anybody would want to do that. Verses 10 through 11, we continue on. It says, so the chief priests made plans. The chief priest made plans to put Lazarus to death as well. Because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. I don't know what you feel when reading that verse. Just think about this. Lazarus reclining at table with his family, with Mary and Martha, with Jesus having fellowship, sharing intimacy, sharing love. And these chief priests make plans to kill him with Jesus. Why? Verse 11, because, because on account of him, because on account of Lazarus, because on account of him being raised from the dead, because on account of what Jesus had done for him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. They're losing their glory. They're losing the attention uh, they had. Some of their peers, maybe some of their students, are leaving them and going to Jesus because of what they heard that had happened uh, to Lazarus. And so now, they want to kill Lazarus. They want to put him back in the tomb. They want to reverse a miracle. They want to take away Mary and Martha's brother. They want to take away that love, that relationship they have because they're losing their glory, the glory that they think they have. 
And man, sometimes I think we, we kind of do something like this. Maybe when we sin. Instead of being concerned about God, focused on God, we say, God, I'm not concerned about your glory. I'm concerned about what I want. Like a conscious, willful decision to turn away from God. That's so much of what sin is. Because we're not concerned about His glory. We're concerned about what we want. We're concerned about our glory. Verses 12 through 13. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. Now in our text, as with a lot of texts, there's a lot of Old Testament fulfillment, a lot of ties to the Old Testament. There is no exception here. They shout, Hosanna! Which can be a shout of praise. It can mean, save us. So they're shouting, save us! What is this from? Psalm 118. This is where this is from. Psalm 118, verses 25 through 29. That says, Save us! We pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God, and he has made his light to shine upon us. We've heard a lot about Jesus being light at the beginning of the Gospel of John. Bind the festival sacrifice with cords up to the horns of the altar. You are my God, and I will give thanks to you. You are my God, I will extol you. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for steadfast love endures forever. You can kind of see the, the implications, the, the relevance of that text, this sacrifice being bound. Of course, Jesus going to Jerusalem, he's going to be put on the cross as a sacrifice. So maybe, maybe this crowd, they're shouting, save us, but they don't maybe realize the implications of what they're saying. Right? As we saw with Caiaphas in the previous chapter, Caiaphas, who apparently was prophesying, Right? He said, yeah, you know, we should kill Jesus. It, it would be good for him to die so that we can keep our influence, so that we can keep our glory. And he didn't realize it. As John says, Caiaphas, he didn't realize that he was prophesying. He didn't realize that he actually was on to something. So maybe this crowd, maybe this crowd shoving save us, they don't actually realize the significance of Jesus being in Jerusalem, the significance of what is about to happen. But a lot of them will. Let's continue on, verses 14 through 16. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered these things had been written about him and, he had, and had been done to him. Another Old Testament fulfillment, Zechariah 9, verse 9, that text says, Rejoice greatly. O daughter of Zion, shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem, behold, your king, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Right, so here's the thing about God, God's work throughout Scripture, it has been foretold. Right, so we got some people here, we got the, the chief priests, you know, they want to kill Lazarus, they want to kill Jesus, they plan, well they think they got a plan to keep their glory, but that's... God's plan. Right? They're just walking into what God is planning. Their plans cannot get in the way of God's plan. This plan of salvation has been in the works for a long time. Just look up anytime, anytime. Just look up on Google. It's very easy. Look up Old Testament fulfillments in the New Testament. You're going to see quite a few. I think over 100, 100 plus. 
It's quite astounding, the fulfillments that you see in the New Testament. This is no exception. The plan of salvation. This is going to happen. Nobody's going to stop this. Let's continue on, verses 17 through 19. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, See that you're gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. So we have this crowd of Jews. That, you know, they saw Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead. They're testifying. They're witnessing that he did this. Meaning, hey, he actually did this. <laughs> we saw this dead man. He was in the tomb. He was rotting. And, and he just walked out. He walked out. He was wrapped in the linen cloth. And he walked out dead. And he came out walking. And then the Pharisees who are present, they see these people they are leaving on account of this witness. They're leaving, they're going after Jesus, and this, these Pharisees that don't believe, they're saying to one another, you're, you're, you're gaining nothing. Right? They're saying that to one another. We're gaining nothing. Our plans, it's not working. We, we want to kill Lazarus, we want to kill Jesus, but it, it seems to not be working. Time and time again, they plan, but they find out that their plans are not working. The world is going after him. And again, I think sometimes these people, they don't realize the significance of what they say or what they do. We saw this in chapter 11, verse 48. They say to the Pharisees of the council, they say, if we let them go on like this, if we let Jesus continue preaching, if we let them continue healing, if we let them go on like this, everyone's going to believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. Well, while they don't believe... They're at least smart enough to realize, hey, Jesus, man, he's going to have the whole world come after him because of what he does, because his works actually testify to who he is. They don't realize what they say has a lot of truth to it. And so here in our text, the world is going after him. Their plans, they're futile. And then notice the transition to verse 20 here. They say the world's going after him. Verse 20 says, Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. Right, so the world's going after him. Some Greeks show up. Some Gentiles show up. It's, it's like the, the text is basically saying that their words, the world is going after him, is directly fulfilled in the next verse. Some Greeks show up. Verses 20, 21 and 22, this says, so they came, uh, these came to Philip. These Greeks, these Gentiles, they came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew, and Andrew Philip, and uh, Philip went and told Jesus. And so they want to see Jesus. Why? Because they heard the testimony. They heard the witnesses, the, the believing Jews, and so they go, the world is coming after Jesus. Jesus is being glorified. And so in verses 9 through 12, or, or sorry, 9 through 19, we see, you know, we, we got these Pharisees, we got these teachers of the law, they're scheming. They're concerned about their own glory to the extent that they're willing <laughs> that they want to kill someone so that they can maintain their influence, so that they can keep the glory that they think they receive. And then we come to the block of text that I think is really most central to this passage, a block of text that's convicting, text that I hope convicts you. Verse 23. Sorry, let's back up to verse 20 and then we'll get to verse 23. 
Now, among those who went up, we have these Greeks that show up, verse 21. So these came, and Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. These Greeks come. The world's coming to Jesus. Verse 23, what's happening? And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. The world's going after him. Jesus is being glorified, and Jesus himself says, It is my time to be glorified. Now, one would think, hey, maybe that means you got, you got more people coming to him. The whole world's going to come to belief in him. Is that what he's talking about? Not really. His glorification is going to look a whole lot different than what people expect. His glorification is going to look like pain. His glorification is going to look like suffering. His glorification is going to look like a criminal on a cross. His glorification is going to look weak. And yet, it's glory. I think verse 23 informs how we read verses 24 through 26. As the title suggests, we see Jesus' glorification and then what results from this glory. Verse 23, Jesus is going to be glorified. Verse 24, we see some difficult things and then we see some blessings, some, you could say, glory that results from these difficult things. So verse 24, it says, Truly, truly, I say to you, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. And so I think Jesus, he's saying this primarily about himself. Right? He's got to die. Jesus knows that, that he's got to die in order to bear this fruit, which is this fruit of salvation. This fruit of salvation for the world, for mankind. Got to die to bear fruit. Difficult thing, die. So I think this applies to him, but I think it applies to us. Difficult thing for us, die. And I think, I think you get this picture here, this grain of wheat dying. Obviously, for a seed to bear fruit, it must go into the ground and no longer be a seed. A seed goes into the ground and then it grows and it's no longer a seed. The seed dies to bear fruit. So what does that mean for us? Die to bear fruit. We're not going to bear fruit if we don't die. If we're just a solitary seed that doesn't want to bear fruit, if we're a seed that wants to stay safe, if we're a seed that doesn't want to be planted, I mean, what is a seed that doesn't bear fruit? Useless. The seed has no purpose. Or the seed's at least not living out its purpose. Might as well be tender on a fire. A seed has a purpose of bearing fruit. Difficult thing, die. Blessing, bear fruit. Verse 25. Whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Difficult thing, lose your life. Hate your life in this world. Now notice that phrase there, in this world. 
I don't think he's saying, oh, you just got to mope around. Oh, my life is so terrible. I don't think that's what Jesus is saying here. But that you realize, man, my, my life right now, my life in the flesh, on the earth, is nothing. It's nothing compared to being in the presence of God. It's nothing compared to being in relationship with Christ. You hate your life in this world because it's nothing compared to being with Him and then blessing. It's hard, hard to lose our life, hard to hate our life in this world. That's hard, but the blessing is that you keep it for eternal life. Verse 26. If anyone serves me, the first half of 26 says, if anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. A difficult thing, if we're honest, difficult thing is to serve. It's difficult. If we're honest with each other, sometimes you know, we, we'd like to be served. Sometimes serving puts you in a compromising position. Sometimes by serving, people can take advantage of you. And people will. Here's the thing, people will take advantage of you if you serve just as they took advantage of Jesus. Difficult thing, serve, blessing. You're going, to be with, you're going to be with Jesus. It's difficult to serve, but you'll be with him. Jesus, who raised Lazarus from the dead. Jesus, who takes a posture of a servant. Jesus, who will serve you. Jesus, who serves you. Jesus, who saves you. Jesus, who loves you. Yes, it's a difficult thing to serve, but it is a blessing to be in the presence of Christ. In the last half of verse 26, if anyone serves me, if anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Again, difficult thing to serve, but blessing, the Father will honor you. Matthew 25, 21, where Jesus says, hey, you know, you, hopefully you'll hear these words, well done. Well done, good and faithful servant. Now in this text, I know reading over this, uh, over verses 23 through 26, you, you might think that sounds a lot like we earn salvation. We do blank. God gives us blank. How is that not salvation by works? Well, let me ask you this. What did verse 23 just say? The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Verse 23 informs how we read verses 24 through 26. Right? There is no being in His presence without His glorification. There is no bearing fruit without His glorification. There is no honor from the Father without His glorification. Verses 24 through 26, that is what it looks like to be saved by Jesus because of what He did, because He was glorified on the cross. So no, it's not salvation by works. None of what we read in verses 24 through 26 is possible, really, without Jesus' glorification. And the thing is, you know, this life, this life that results from the glorification of Christ, it is difficult. But look at the blessings. Just being in his presence. Or could we at least understand that? I'm, I'm talking to people here right now who, who've never once at least been in, in the physical presence of Jesus. 
Right? Jesus in flesh and blood. Right? Yes, we have the Spirit with us right now. We do. We do, but that's not the fullness of God. There's going to come a day when we are in the fullness of God where we, like the disciples, can touch his hands, see him. The blessings, man. The life is hard, but the blessings are great. You can come now. You can be in Christ as we stand and sing.